You're listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode 14, The Dracula Code, or The Historian by Elizabeth Costover. Before we begin this episode, we'd just like to mention that we are recording this about two days after the announcement of Anton Yelchin's death. Uh, Anton Yelchin, as you know, was in both Fright Night and Only Lovers Left Alive, two of our favourite vampire films of the past few months. Obviously, we're really shocked and sad by this, as a lot of people are. It's always incredibly sad when someone whose work you love dies, especially under such shocking and tragic circumstances. And so young. And so young, yes, which is just too raw to kind of deal with I think for a lot of us especially around that age and those of us who are Star Trek fans and fans of the aforementioned films so our condolences to his family and his loved ones and 2016 sucks basically worst year ever so if you're not familiar with The Historian by Elizabeth Costova it is a really long book about a bunch of librarians hunting down Dracula if you're not familiar with um, The Historian by Elizabeth Costover, it's a really long book about people hunting down the final resting location of Dracula, who may or may not be dead, because he's a vampire. And when I say long, I mean it's about 240,000 words plus. My edition of the book was just over 700 pages. Yeah, that's sort of the standard size. And it's mostly description. <laughs> I think we should give a little bit of background on the book itself pre-publication because you may have forgotten this, but when this book came out in 2005, it was a big deal. It was one of two big vampire books purchased by, well, the, the little brown umbrella. The other one coming out that same year was Twilight. So Elizabeth Costova spent about a decade writing this book. It was purchased for $2 million by Little Brown. Keep in mind, the average advance at the time was about 30 grand for a first novel. I think that number is a lot lower now due to the state of publishing. So they 100% believed that this book was going to be a huge hit. And not only did they put the money down to prove that, they also put down about half a million dollars on advertising and publicity alone. For a debut novel that's nowadays is basically unheard of. There are exceptions. I recently read The Girls by Emma Klein, which received a huge advance in publicity campaign. But the campaign was partially based on just how much money they paid for it. They didn't do a massive cross-media publicity for it like they did for The Historian. This was on all of the morning chat shows in America. It got front-page magazine headlines. The buzz was strong in a way that publishing just doesn't do anymore. And it worked. It hit number one in its first week on the New York Times bestseller list. I believe it was the first debut novel to ever do so. It sold something like 900,000 copies in the first couple of months of its release, which once again is very rare. It basically, it made them a lot of money and it made Elizabeth Costova a lot of money. And yet we're over a decade on since its release and I don't really see it being part of the wider conversation of vampire fiction. Maybe because it was overshadowed by Twilight? But given how many copies it sold and all of the comparisons that were made to, as we mentioned in the title of the episode, The Da Vinci Code was one of the most commonly compared books for the historian, but we don't see it talked about. 
And I, I wonder why that is. I mean, okay, I don't think the book is very good, but something that sold this many copies should at least be part of the conversation a little more, because the Da Vinci Code is terrible, but people still talk about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, one of the few books my mother has read in the past decade. Oh, bless. Hey, I read it. I can't even judge. I haven't read it, so I can. <laughs> oh, look at you. But the thing is, as well, the, the reviews for the historian were mixed, but there were plenty of people who really liked it. I wonder if it's partially because of Twilight is one of the reasons it's kind of sunk away, but I also think it might have something to do with the fact that Elizabeth Kostova has only published one book since, and it basically flopped. You know, she's not part of the current publishing conversation because she hasn't published anything. There are only, you know, a handful of authors still writing today who can kind of get away with those huge gaps in their schedule. If you're not releasing a book a year or a book every couple of years, you do sink away pretty quickly, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that Kostova has quite the staying power of, like, Donna Tart. She can't afford to only publish a book a decade. Yeah, well, it took her a decade to write The Historian, and when The Swan Thieves came out, it wasn't that much time later, so... But four years. Mm. Yeah, but on her schedule, that's pretty quick. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier that the novel is partially inspired by, partially an adaptation, partially a follow-up, etc. of Dracula. It's an intertextual examination that looks at the way the mythology of Vlad the Impaler has mixed with the fictional construct of Dracula from Bram Stoker's novel and how that creates a particular kind of mythology in the current day. That sounds really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Is the book interesting? Oddly enough, it's less interesting now that I know more about the places and everything that are being visited. When I first read this, probably around 2007, eight, um, much younger now, um, and very much in the throes of young adult vampires, which, you know, is most of my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I started reading L.J. Smith when I was 13, so... I just devoured it and couldn't put it down. This time, I sort of had to slog through it. I mean, I get excited when I saw places that I mentioned that I actually knew of and had planned on my I want to visit these vampire places holiday plans. But other than that, I'm like, I'm just going to read this during long loading screens in video <laughs> games. I remember liking the book when I read it. I read it when it first came out, about 2006, actually, once the paperback was out in Tesco. And I think it's the kind of thing you may have more patience for when you're younger, especially if you're into that genre. You'll put up with this complete slog of a pace. You'll put up with long descriptions of freaking letters. You'll put up with, you know, I'm afraid we don't have much time, but I'm going to write it all down in a 12-page letter, which you're going to read over four <laughs> separate intervals, despite the fact that you're clearly in trouble and you need to read these letters now. Yeah, there's a lot of excess description. You could easily trim it off at least by 10%, if not more. Without any further issues or even much consideration, you could trim it down by 10% up to uh, probably at least 25% and still have that heavy, dense description feeling. But here's the problem. I legitimately don't think Elizabeth Kostova is a good writer. No offence to her, but I don't think she has the skill to pull this kind of story off. I think what she wanted to do was write a scholarly examination of all the things we mentioned earlier. But there's no money in scholarship. 
There's no two million dollar advances in scholarship. Oh, good on her for that then, I suppose. Yeah, go for it. Enjoy yourself. Go get money. We like that. We like money. I just had no patience for this book. I think I got about 150 pages in and I was just like, oh dear lord. Vampire's gonna show up. I just feel like a book with evil librarians should not be this dull. I just don't think Dracula should be this dull. What is interesting, there is a quote from Elizabeth Costova herself where she talks about Dracula and what she says is Dracula is a metaphor for the evil that is so unhar- that is so hard to undo in history. She has all these really fascinating ideas about Dracula and how he represents the best and worst in us and we've talked about this before is how you can really read the metaphor of Dracula as an examination of the time that it's written or adapted in. That's all really fascinating and I think that she had an eye towards examining that, particularly the way that we managed to get Dracula from the real historical figure of Vlad the Impaler. But it doesn't really go anywhere. We get all these long descriptions of libraries and Amsterdam and everywhere the narrator is sort of dragged around Europe by her dad and all the people they meet in restaurants and her going to school and all of these and her na- not her nanny but her housekeeper and all of this stuff that is so extemporaneous. We don't need that. There's a creative writing structure somewhere reading this with a red pen and going, you don't need that, you don't need that, you don't need that. It's so fanficy. You can get away with that kind of padding in fanfiction. I have a higher tolerance for it in fanfiction. Here, I was just bored. That's the thing. In fanfic, there'd also be there's often less description because you don't need to describe all that stuff. So there sometimes is less padding. But there's no sense of urgency in this book as well. We're supposed to feel like there's a race against time to find the resting place of Dracula because so many people's lives depend on it. Yet Kostova is so obsessed with describing the most minute and unimportant details that even scholars, I think, would be bored by. Yeah, there was a lot of conversations that reminded me of talking to people in, you know, historian jobs or archaeology lecturers and things like that. Some of the conversations rang true in the fact that they just went on and on and on. But in fiction, you sometimes need to actually fix that. You need shit to happen. (laughs) (laughs) And things do occasionally happen. I mean, there is a moment where a librarian gets run over by a car, which is kind of entertaining. There is, of course, the fact that Dracula... In the book of Dracula, he's really excited about getting legitimate property deals. Here, he really seems to like organising books. And his printing press. He likes his printing press. And I admire that. We all need hobbies. But unfortunately, nowadays, there's just an app for that, Dracula. (laughs) Seriously, if this happened in the modern day and he managed to finally get himself a librarian, the librarian would be like, so there's these things called computers and you just scare (laughs) I'm just imagining Tim Cook explaining this all to him on an iPhone. (laughs) Dracula talking to Siri. Look, and you can also see what time the sun's going to rise. And you can Google pictures of virgins. <laughs> Find that nice silk scarf you lost in the 30s. <laughs> you know, I like the idea of Dracula being a scholar. I think it presents an interesting contrast to Dracula the warrior and Dracula the, the virgin hunter. <laughs> but once it's not something we see a lot of because we keep hearing about the other scholars... We should explain the structure of the book. The basic structure is three separate timelines. Three generations, really. Yeah, three generations. 
which are interspersed with moments of discussing the history of Vlad Tepish in the 15th century and also the writing of the novel of Dracula itself in the 1890s. So there's the 1970s narrator is an unnamed teenage girl. The 1950s narrator is her dad, Paul. And the 1930s narration is Paul's academic mentor, Bartholomew Rossi. The book opens with the narrator, this teenage girl, in Amsterdam in the 70s. She finds this old book with the woodcut of a dragon in the centre, which is associated with Dracula. She asks her dad about it. He gets all pale and shocked and find out that actually, yeah, he had that book as well because he found it in a library. So he went to Bartholomew Rossi and said, hey, I found this book. Do you know anything about it? And he's like, oh shit, I've got that book too. <laughs> and it turns out that actually Dracula is alive, is an actual vampire, and shit's going down. Well, I say shit's going down, that would imply that things happen. <laughs> See, the premise is so exciting. Um, Dracula going after people <laughs> generation by generation, you know, trying to find someone almost worthy of a position. And yet, what happens? We get on trains and read some letters. But it's also in an attempt to create tension and pacing. What happens is the 1970s unnamed narrator will say, hey, Dad, you should tell me about this a little. And he says, okay, I will tell you a small bit. And then we'll get a flashback to him talking about meeting his professor. And then we'll get a letter that the professor wrote him, which will be about four pages long, written apparently in a hurry, even though he keeps referring to him as my dear and unfortunate successor. And isn't it handwritten as well? Something like that. It's just basically the diddly, just showing diddly, diddly, diddly flashback thing inside a flashback. It's flashback exception. Yeah. But the thing was, you'll get this dramatic moment. There is one chapter that ends with Rossi telling Paul Dracula's alive. And then it goes back to the unnamed narrator and it's like, oh, we're out of time today. I'm really tired. Let's finish this later. And it's like, don't you think it's important for her to know this? Because it's clear that your your own daughter, your own family is caught up in this irrevocably and you need to equip her with the knowledge to deal with it and you're like no i'm just too tired no i'm just gonna go to bed you know i don't want to talk about this worst shahrazad ever dracula is alive oh that's enough time for today our session is is done i'll see you next week remember to pay your copay i wonder if she wrote this more as a potential screenplay because you like you get that kind of cliffhanger stuff if you're doing it weekly to week that's the fan fiction bit, the cliffhangers. Right, isn't it? But, like, I think this would probably make a more interesting miniseries than it does as a book. Yeah. Like, the... Could you imagine if this was made by, like, John Logan and the people who made Penny Dreadful? The visuals of all these grand, um, or not-so-grand monasteries and things like that. Because for all the description, there's not broad descriptions for the average reader of places. No, all of the descriptions is on really kind of minute, frivolous things. Curtains. Food. Where they're staying. You know, stuff like that. Yeah, and it is really just missing a lot. Like, as the book reveals, it reveals more and more how the unnamed narrator is tied into this. And so much that is revealed in this stuff is like, you didn't tell her earlier? So she, when it right? Comes- it almost feels irresponsible for those characters, not so much for Costello who's creating it, that just feels lazy. 
And it doesn't help that no one actually feels like a character in this story. A number of reviews pointed this out. Everyone feels more like a tour guide. And it's, you know, that's a very accurate way to describe it. Because we don't even get the name of the narrator, the young woman, which I feel like she's trying to create a sort of semi-self-insert element to it, something that brings the reader along and involves them personally. Which is... But you still need specificity behind that. You can't just rely on that vagueness. Yeah, and the thing is, it specifically mentions that her name is the same as her Romanian-born grandmother's. So it's going to be, or at least an English version of a Romanian name. So they have to go out of the way to not mention the name of the of one half of a grand tragic love story. They just refer to her as so-and-so's mother or by her surname. Kind of pointless, that. And there's no real kind of differentiation between that narrator and even someone like her dad, who gets a little more character development because we actually see his journey. But even then, he feels more like a vessel than a character. She doesn't sound like a teenage girl. I mean, she's obviously not a teenage girl. But... Well, in fairness, she's not supposed to. She's writing it from when she's in her 30s, isn't she? 30s or 40s. Something like that. It's very in the modern day sort of thing, you know, in the 2000s type era looking back. But still, even some of the actions is not very teenage girl. She's not extremely fussed that a random dude is coming along with her on her journey. No, that was a bit weird. And then they what it reminds me of a little bit was, I don't know if you've read Possession by A.S. Byatt? No. There's that kind of mingling of academia with two different timelines, and I wonder if that was the kind of thing that she was going for. The difference is A.S. Byatt is an incredible writer of prose. There are moments that seem like very pretty descriptions, but they don't seem in service of anything. It doesn't really create mood, it doesn't really create a sense of place. The thing that she clearly cares about the most, almost to a fetishistic degree, is the academic side itself. The manuscripts, the books, there's all these beautiful descriptions of maps. And, you know, which is great, because I love all that stuff. But you need more than that. If you're going to write a story about Dracula where you're more interested in the maps than the vampires, I'm going to have problems with that. And even then, the maps and all the text and everything are very separate from everything else. Like, there's a description of the map, but unless you really know your vampire stuff, there's there's no it's relevance. It's a book that, in that sense, it's such a strange book because it's trying to be written for a mass audience, and it obviously worked for a mass audience. It sold millions of copies. But it's also weirdly inaccessible in those elements, unless you do know your stuff. You know, there's a brief mention of, and I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Sigi Soara. Um, well, anyway, it's the town where Vlad Tepes was um, born and where his birthplace is now a restaurant and a weapons museum, which is amazing and a place I want to go because it's got two of my favourite things, foods and killing things. But if you don't know... <laughs> what? <laughs> like, you know, two, two for the price of one. And yet you haven't watched Hannibal? <laughs> I have watched Hannibal. Just not all of it yet, because have to get the dvds or borrow them and they don't have them but if you don't know references to things like um lake snugov and the monastery there and how he's supposedly buried at this monastery they're just going to be names and places that just go over your head i wonder if that was kind of the point in terms of 
because the book is so obsessed and single-mindedly focused on the academic side of it, I wonder if this was Elizabeth Kostova's way of showing the frustrations and obsessions and kind of self-destruction that comes with being an academic. Just, you know, you're constantly obsessing over this thing that is kind of ridiculous and benign to the rest of the world. The only problem is, in the context of her world, she wants the reader to believe that this is a matter of utmost urgency and danger. And we never get that because we're so, we spend so many pages just looking at documents. And also just the three generation thing kind of slows everything down. And it's also often really hard to differentiate between each of the segments. It's like, and suddenly flashback, except to who? Like, at least, like, I don't know, occasionally italicize a paragraph, a paragraph or something. I There were moments where I was like, oh, okay, we've switched narrators. Because they all sound exactly the same. The narrator sounds exactly like her dad. Paul sounds exactly like Bartholomew Rossi. Rossi is a better letter writer, but, you know, <laughs> it was the 30s. They did things like that. Generally, all of the adults in this book are useless. And so it's the Everyone's teenager. kind of useless, actually. It's so, like, I joke that the Dracula in this world is more like a villain out of a Scooby-Doo cartoon than anything else. <laughs> you would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for those pesky librarians. But there's no fear here. And I, it's interesting that Costello herself tries to describe the novel as being a, a chiller, like a ghost story. Because it's really not scary. And it's interesting that Costova herself has talked about this being like a ghost story, that kind of chiller of a novel, not necessarily full-blown horror, but it is certainly intended to be eerie. Because I didn't find it scary in the slightest. It was too dull for that. And it's also almost completely bloodless. Which is apparently by design, because Costova herself promised that only a cup of blood would be spilled. Which, come on, it's vampires! And if you get hit by a car, I assume some blood will be spilled. Even if I it's imagine that might mostly be internal bleeding. Yeah, but that's still blood going places it shouldn't be. Yeah, but it's the kind of thing that you could do in a film and it would only get a 12A rating. But if you're going to write not just about Dracula, but about Vlad the Impaler, emphasis on Impaler... And there is because there is a moment where she's um, the unnamed female narrator is reading up on some historical text on Vlad the Impaler, and she reads the stuff that he was alleged to have done or was recorded in history as having done. Lots of people on pikes. I believe one man gets his tongue yanked out as well. Like they're not pleasant things. Basically, a lot of the descriptions were of you know the joke of I'll. Put my foot so far up your ass, you'll taste my shoelaces or something like that. Imagine that, but pikes and actually happening. Which, and, once again, if you know anything about the history of Vlad the Impaler, it's not that's, necessarily that surprising. Yeah, it's the average, Joes. Only we could say this was average. <laughs> Sadly, there are a lot more scary vampires out there than anything in this book. It's funny. It even makes librarians dull. Yeah, and it's funny. We were complaining about the lack of vampirism in Hotel Transylvania. This is worse. Well, there's even less here. At least, you know, there is the the dashing vampire archetype in um, Hotel Transylvania, and there's stuff going on. But for a book that's, you know, a quarter of the size, it does a hell of a lot more. So I, I think that one had a much more precise sense of place in history and geography as well. Yeah. Partially because it's written historical novel 
It's strange. It's actually improved my feeling for Transylvania quite a bit. <laughs> Gust, I think that I think that's pretty much the gist of how the book is lowering and pointless, isn't it? <laughs> I feel like it, we're giving it too much time on that, but honestly, it's kind of the thing that's taking up most of the focus because it often feels like Kostova is just not interested in any other element of the story. And that's such a strange thing to encounter as a reader of... As someone who really loves vampire novels and has, you know, read a lot of Dracula stuff and has read watched a lot of Dracula movies. Even the worst movies of Dracula have something interesting in them. A glimmer of originality or fascinating ideas that really you wouldn't find in an adaptation that came 20 years before, for example. At least a lot of the other adaptations try to do something exciting and different. Even NBC Dracula. Um, <laughs> you um, get like flashbacks whenever that's mentioned, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, at least try to come up with something, even if it sort of failed spectacularly and went too ridiculous. But at least you could kind of go along with the silliness of that at least there was a driving force forward for a story or I say story there's quotation marks around that here this is mostly theory and the theory is just not interesting enough to sustain a reader yeah this is basically we've gone to place A we found a tiny clue go to place B maybe we found a clue go see and visit your mother and yeah, your see- mother's still alive surprise and it turns out she's only like 50 something so that's not a surprise at all I feel like if we were to criticise the really cliched elements of the plot, particularly the way that women are used, and the narrator's mother is, you know, much more interesting than any of the men in the story, but she is kind of relegated to the tragic victim of the vampires trope. I feel like if we were to talk about that, there would be the inevitable criticism of, well, it's playing on the tropes, or it's examining them, and it's... It's just trope. It's just a trope. You know, acknowledging that you use a trope is not subversion of the trope. Yeah. There's a great base concept in here. We've got three generations of women uh, who are in the family. They are descended from um, Dracula, or at least marked by Dracula. There's a bit of a weird fuzzy thing, I think. It might have been in the book, but I probably missed it because it was somewhere in the description of curtains. That's the thing that stands out. There's a big description of curtains in one scene. Two of them are actually physically marked with the mark of the of Dracula's dragon. The grandmother was chosen because the father thought she was going to be the ugly one and he had to brand one of his kids. And it's like, really, dude? Really? <laughs> and then Guy comes into her life looking for Dracula. He's like, seriously, they've got exciting ideas. You know, a woman tracking down her missing, well, the father that abandoned her after he met her mother and impregnated her on the search for Dracula. We've got a woman who, you know, left communist Hungary doing some possibly less than ethical or just really tricksy means of getting out of the country and getting access to British universities and things like that. But she's just the the sidekick in the story. She's off having her own adventures and really doing the big lifting after some other events. And she's, again, secondary character. She's the missing mother trope. And not just the missing mother, but the missing daughter, because she's Rossi's daughter. She's almost entirely defined by that, even though there are all these other things that are really interesting. 
even, you know, the original Dracula didn't strangle on women in that way. Or at least not the main ones who were kind of supposed to be the driving forces of the, the plot. It's... You know, at least with Mina, you get time to see her life and her ingenuity and the way that she operates in the world, both separately and as part of the relationship with Jonathan and also her relationship with Lucy. There aren't a whole lot of like relationships between women in this story. Everyone and I is... get that it's, you know, it's early 20th century academia. It's crusty white dudes with beards. I get that. But it's it's all felt like a problem to me. Yeah, we've got characters who are, well, there's the housekeeper, there's the daughter, the Helen and her mother, the three generations there. There's a few people's wives and a niece, some other old lady and somebody's aunt. They're all defined by a relationship that is basically a, I am connected to this man via X, via marriage. And there are a lot of helpful tourists who they meet on their holidays who maybe drop in a line or two that may be of help for the wider mystery. But those aren't characters. Like I said, they're tour guides. Yeah, and then there's a few other random dudes who've got the same book, and it's like, oh, really? Wow. And they're all really happy to talk about that. Yeah, even after we This doesn't seem very serious. This is like how everyone in the world of Torchwood knows who Torchwood are, even though it's supposed to be a massive secret. Well, considering how terrible Torchwood is at keeping things quiet. (laughs) Like, Jack Harkness cannot do anything on the quiet. Oh my god, now I'm imagining Jack Harkness as the world's worst vampire hunting. (laughs) That probably was. Where are the vampires? I would watch that. Joe Merriman, get him him in a vampire film. Oh, he would have a ball with that. Seriously, just fun. But you think, you know, with all the work that Helen Rossi was doing, she would have managed to get hold of a book. She comes into it looking for her father, not because she's been selected as one of Dracula's chosen. When, as you can tell, she's very, very competent and does a lot of the work. Yeah, she seems to be one of the few female scholars in the piece. Well, it does sort of mention her issues... Well, the issues she faces being a woman in academia in this time, especially a foreign woman. Surely, if Dracula's handing out these books willy-nilly, he says something about printing off 1,477 or something like that and handing them out to chosen ones. So, like, surely she could have got one of those books. And when we do finally get to hear her voice directly at the end of the book when she's writing letters to her daughter talking about her pregnancy and how she's not handling being a mother, new mother very well because of various vampire problems. That stuff was actually quite interesting. That felt like a, or at least an attempt at a pretty honest discussion of postpartum depression and anxiety of being a mother with and added it, vampires. Yeah, and it sounds like an actual person. Yeah, that's one of the few times where there's like actual characterization. There's an academic distance, but that's very much in the character's personality. But you can still feel the, the strains and the, the sorrow and the regret in Helen's voice and her words and everything. When she describes, you know, imagining how she should be visiting this place with her child in a little dress and a little hat, you know, because they've gone out for the day and are dressing nice. And how she's like, I've missed a birthday. And just the feeling of how she's become the parent that Rossi was to her, the absent one. Man, Helen would have just been a much better, much more interesting character to follow rather than the person who helps Paul get around Eastern Europe. Yeah, I find Paul to be not only dull, but kind of useless. He's that guy. 
he's so constantly shocked by the predicament that he's found himself in, even though he's been going through this for like 20 years. <laughs> Just like every time the subject comes up, he, he you feel like you need to find this man a fainting couch. Mm-hmm. Plus, he was just so reliant on Helen. Well, she's doing all the translating, or at least getting in contact. And even when she's coming up against walls because of her agenda, she's still figuring stuff out and doing all the stuff because she actually knows the stuff or know, has the connections or knows her language or things like that. And yet she's still the secondary character of that generation storyline. I'm just confused as to why she ends up being kind of sidelined in such a blatant manner. It feels kind of regressive. Like we've talked before about the way that women are handled in vampire stories, particularly ones that are set in the past. But this was a book that was published in 2005. It feels like it should be savvier than this. Mm-hmm. I, just, I, I see no creative reason to keep the most interesting character in the story, who happens to be a woman, sidelined in order to create the absent wife slash mother trope. Especially since this is written by a woman. Yes. If anything was going to have a better chance of not doing some of these tropes, it would be, especially since it's about a woman in academia, it would be a book written by a woman. Not saying that women can't do regressive stories and uh, fall victim to all these tropes when they're writing, but if anyone's going to have at least some sort of instinctual chance of seeing the problems with some of these tropes, it should be a, a woman because they'll probably watch things and go, ugh, look, they've just killed off the woman again. We've discussed this with Twilight and how, even though written by a woman, it's still incredibly sexist in its tropes and its handlings and things like that. And yet, that story still gets to be told from the point of view of a woman. <laughs> I mean, this one is too, but I would argue that even Bella Swan manages to have more of a character than the narrator here, because at least she has a freaking name. I would be more forgiving of the kind of shunting of Helen if Paul and Bartholomew Rossi were more to speak of. But they're not. I found it so hard to tell the difference between them sometimes, even when I knew that it was a different narrator speaking or writing a letter at the time. So, And when you're reading that for 700 pages, it's tough. Yeah, there's a huge lack of differentiation between the dudes. There should be something different, but there isn't. I kind of lost track of who the various other librarians were. It was odd. I could keep the monks separate, but not the the librarians. There's very little differentiation between a lot of these characters. Really very little differentiation, not just between the characters, but between those characters that are narrating the book and Dracula himself. Yeah, Dracula, as I said, just shows up at the end, talks about books, and then dies. He gets taken down so quickly, I wonder if... Costova had a deadline to meet or something or if she was just bored because you have hundreds and hundreds of pages of build up of how dangerous and sinister and racing against time these people are against this creature this abominable demon and then he gets taken down by one bullet yeah it's a silver bullet but come on there's no fight it's very much I was half expecting it to go and then I woke up and it was all a dream <laughs> rocks fall Dracula dies Basically, I, I would have been a bit more excited by that, to be honest. Yeah, Tomb Chambling Castle. That you would expect that to fall. Yeah, and that would at least have some more base in the general storyline of Dracula. It's just sort of him being really fond of the Bram Stoker story. It's just kind of like, yes, we get it. 
It's a great story, to be fair. Yeah, I mean, it's probably more exciting than all the other biographies of himself he's collated over the years. It reminded me of how good Dracula itself is as a book. Yeah, for all of the random natter in the letters and the diaries and everything, it actually works because one, all this description sort of comes in before they're initially on the hunt, like Jonathan noting about the the food he's eating. It's sort of like, I really like this. See if I can get the recipe so I can eat it at home. It's a really honest and natural thought, you know? Oh, I've got to have more of this. All of the random nattering by Lucy and Mina is before everything goes to shit. Once everything gets really exciting and dangerous and on a deadline, it compresses naturally. Yeah. But the thing is, in this book, from basically the first chapter, you're supposed to believe that there is this race against time for information, for the search, for people's lives and their welfare, particularly Helen Rossi's. And we just don't get that because curtains. And tea. Well, we can all have a bit of tea. I wonder if Dracula is deliberately supposed to be kind of dull. Like, they've built him up so much through folklore and fiction and all of these things that ultimately he is just kind of... A dude. This this dude with a bit of power and a lot of books. But then I remember that the way that he compels Helen Rossi... Like, there's a moment where she's almost going to jump off a cliff. Or she does jump off the cliff, doesn't she? Yep, she just manages to survive. It was kind of vaguely described, to be honest. But, like, if he has that power and then he's taken down in, like, two pages by a gunshot, that, to me, feels so much like lazy storytelling. That's throwing the bucket of water on the witch. Yeah. Like, at least you got a a chase scene when Dracula was going to die, you know? There was an actual race there. There was a ticking clock. And the, the slowness of the thing was because of the, the, the trains and everything at the time, and it was really impacting. You know, we need to be really precise, and we need to have Mina using psychic powers to figure out where he is. This is just, we're sitting on the train, and there's some guy talking to me behind a newspaper. We've talked about how I this is... I think I would have liked the Dracula as scholar element more if we'd seen more of the scholarly pursuits of Dracula. What is he doing with this information he's collecting? What are his ultimate plans? What does he get from it personally, mentally, emotionally, all of these things? Because for, you know, academia is a lifelong, obsessive pursuit for many people. And that's it's an the- expensive pursuit. It's something that, you know, you commit to it. And you're going to spend a lot of, you're going to spend a lot of your days alone in libraries with your head down. And, and for that's- you, it ultimately has to be worth it. So there must be something here that Dracula's getting from it, but we don't see any of that. Just partially because of the way the story's told. It's not like we're going to get a moment where it's a diary entry from Vlad, which would yeah. be cool. It's mostly, it comes across as, I've collected all these books and now I have no space. Someone help me sort out my crap. Except he goes through this really long and ridiculous process of finding someone to help him sort out his crap. By the Isn't tra- that kind of a really dull objective for him to have? I need someone to sort out my library? And to go out and get me more books, and then, you know, 20 years from now, just somebody would show him how to use Amazon? Like, you and I would have done that job in an unpaid internship, easily. <laughs> the intern. We would have turned up so early for the first day of that job. Like, we're working for Dracula, this is so worth doing it for the exposure. <laughs> but not to sunlight. 
Is this... I couldn't even figure out, is this one of the sunlight averse Draculas? I don't know. It's so vaguely described. Like, we get a moment where the narrator reads Dracula and it's just, his weaknesses are described there, but we're never really kind of given an explanation as to how the real Dracula of the novel is affected by that. Yeah, he's just a dude patting his printing press. That's it. And who gets shot and dies. Maybe. Dun dun dun. It's just such a strangely benign book. It's a waste of Dracula. Yeah. I've seen the Gerard Butler Dracula, and that was a better use of Dracula than this. I mean, there are terrible uses of Dracula, but at least there are being he's being used. Yeah, I, I say that too. I, there, he's, what, he's, what is he here? I start falling over myself trying to figure it out. I he, genuinely Dracula don't... in this book is like when family and I tried to climb, went to climb Mount Coco when my sister and I were young, and my sister wouldn't walk up the thing, so my father told her there was an ice cream shop at the top. Dracula is the ice cream shop that turns out to be closed because it doesn't actually exist and that we all run to see. You really worked for that metaphor there, didn't you? I just want ice cream. <laughs> Dracula- I can have ice cream, actually. Yeah, yeah, Dracula in this book is a promise that never gets delivered on. And that's a really big problem just from a storytelling point of view. Seriously, if you're going to write a thing about Dracula, give me Dracula. A 700-page thing about Dracula. Yeah, he, as I said, he's only in the last 100 pages, and even then it's pretty scant, because he only appears in that last 100 pages. Not that he's the bulk of the 100 pages. And to what effect? Like, what does the reader get from it? Almost nothing. Brother, he doesn't really leave an impact. We don't really get what his objectives or aims are. I mean, we know what they are, but we just wonder why. He's almost as nothing of a character as the dude that runs around with the unnamed narrator. And even that guy gets to have sex with her. Well, what else would you expect the women in the story to do? Be their own characters? Yeah, that's the thing. She ends up travelling with an older... Was it like a graduate student or something like that? Of course it's a grad student. For a story about academia, there has to be a grad student. (laughs) Everyone's a grad student. Or at least an older student and they just sort of end up in the spot where they just sort of look at each other and they're like okay we need to get into the bed together because we can only afford one room and then they end up having sex because they just can't help it adds absolutely nothing to their connection to the storyline it could have been more interesting if they were about just two female friends or if they didn't if he was like crap i've left my girlfriend or my wife or my boyfriend or my husband well not husband uh because of the time period behind and had to come up with some excuse or to them, things like that. But no, he just sort of gets on a train with this stranger and loses his stuff. And then they have sex. And all I can think of is relationships formed under stress will not survive. And I'm like, this relationship will not go anywhere once they deal with Dracula. Because that's the I entire... Wonder if the... Sorry, I wonder if the sex was just a way to create a quote-unquote coming-of-age story. Because what's coming-of-age for an adolescent? Sex, apparently. That's kind of the beginning of the end of it. There was just nothing to the relationship. At least with um, Helen and Paul, you could you can tell they've spent enough time together that something would happen between them. I mean, they go and visit her mother, and her mother is basically like, "Oh, you brought such a nice man home." And <laughs> when you take a man to meet your mother, even if you're hunting Dracula, there's a certain thing in that conversation, even if you don't translate that part for him. It's just they try to create these moments of levity, and then it falls so flat because. 
on top of not being able to really create mood or place, it doesn't know how to do basic human interactions like humor. Yeah. Because no one talks like a person in this book. Helen comes closest from talking about her anxieties and her regrets and guilt. But like we said, that's almost sidelined from the story because they're not pouring over a map. There's just a lack of everything. And now we're just sad. <laughs> As I said before we started recording this, for a book this long, we're not going to actually have much to talk about. I mean, even the TV tropes page for the book is as short as it is you know you've got problems have you seen the summary on wikipedia yes that is pretty empty oh no the description is pretty full but it's everything is described is sort of you know when you write an essay and you've run out of ideas for the essay so you just start recounting the plot and then this happened and then this happened all the interesting stuff on the wikipedia page is about really for me the selling of the book but there are stuff on there about you know the ideas that she's going for and stuff i get the feeling she wrote this wikipedia page herself yeah because the actual plot summary is not that long no for a 700 page book it's not that long but you know not a single curtain is mentioned (laughs) but it does mention the ending the epilogue which i feel like we have to talk about so the epilogue picks up in modern day, about 2008, the unnamed narrator is an adult now. She's giving a, a speech at a conference. She goes off to the library and an attendant rushes over to return her things to her that she'd forgotten. And inside is a book with the dragon painted in the centre, revealing that either Dracula is alive or his goons have sprung and started the cult again. Dun dun dun, and the adventure continues. Thankfully it didn't. I wonder if that was publisher mandated. Just given how rushed the end of the story is and the actual death of Dracula, this does feel like kind of a tacked on and another thing. There's a lot in this book that shouldn't be and there's a lot that isn't in this book that should be. And I'm stunned that an editor at Little Brown didn't really delve into this. I mean, not that they needed to, because as we said, this book sold a shit ton of copies. But I feel like it would have been talked about more and it would have sort of hung around longer. It would have hung around longer as a an entry in the canon. It may have stood alongside Twilight. Because in a way, I think there are certain allusions here to Twilight. The book it actually ends up reminding me of a, the most is Deborah Harkness's A Discovery of Witches. Mm-hmm. Which is the same in that it's incredibly long and there's a lot of stuff about academia, but really what everyone ends up talking about most is like the personal belongings and hobbies of the heroine and the vampire hero. If a discovery of witches is vampire as domestic goddess, or domestic god I should say, this is vampire as kind of harried professor. I don't mind the idea of It's a bad idea, it's just horrendously executed. Yeah, seriously, a, a vampire librarian who just, you know, actually interacts in catalogs and trying to deal with his, you know, scanning thing would be hilarious. Assuming you've got one of those vampires who doesn't adapt very well. Vampires being individuals can do whatever the hell they like. In a way, I feel like maybe Kostova was far too timid with the material. Like, she was afraid to really show Dracula as something worth being scared of. I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, because I recently read... The Girls by Anna Klein, which is one of the most hotly hyped books of the year, $2 million advance, a woman about our age, depressing. And the story's influenced by the Manson family. 
and yet mild spoiler alert i don't think it really is but you know warned if you're you know you're pissed off about that kind of thing but she seems so unwilling to really endanger her protagonist you know, if you're going to lay down groundwork as iconic and genuinely scary and disturbing as the Manson murders, and you don't properly utilize it in a way that shows how genuinely terrifying that stuff is, I, I have to question your intent as a storyteller, and I question Costova's intent as a storyteller to use Dracula in this way or not use it. You know, and I'm not, you know, telling her you have to write like this because we say so. That's not, you know. It's your book, you can do whatever you want. You shouldn't feel constrained by what potential readers may want. But the questions are going to arise, particularly in terms of how you use material as iconic as Dracula. Yep. So, because you're not going to be the first person that's done that. So there's an interview I found back from 2005 um, on com, which is about the historian, and there's a quote here from Costova said, I started writing a novel about Dracula, but gradually discovered that, among other things, I was writing a love story across the Iron Curtain, a story about a young woman who has been brought up in a very intellectual, academic atmosphere where learning is valued but people are sheltered. So some of this is also the story of her movement out of boxing into the world. But it's not. It's not, (laughs) yeah. Like, I mean, I'm glad that she thinks it's that. But there's no heat here for it to count as anything remotely romantic. There's no real kind of build-up of a coming-of-age story. I mean, Helen does is certainly the most interesting character in the story, but Costova doesn't even seem to think that. And it would be really fascinating to tell the story of life behind Iron Curtain in the historical region of Vlad the Impaler. The illusions there would be really fascinating to read. Seriously, there's so much potential in Helen Rossi's character and her life. She's one of those wasted characters, which so often happen to be women or characters of colour or queer characters or characters with disabilities. They're the people who really push the story forward and are the true central focus of the story, but always have to be the sidekick or the love interest to the presumed straight white dude. I just keep coming back to the sheer wasted potential of the book. Yeah, that's basically the historian in a nutshell. What a waste. What a bore. What a bore, yes. I think we have to talk about if we'd even recommend this book. I think this would be the first of the things that we've done episodes on where I would not recommend it. If you are a Dracula completist and you have patience for books this freaking long, go for it. It's not necess- It's not a necessity. If you're wanting to read a vampire book, there are plenty of books that actually have much more vampire in them. If you're looking for a book where people talk about historical things over tea and know a lot about various dates, then this is probably a good book. (laughs) If If you actually want to read something scholarly on Dracula, just read some of the scholarly work. There is some beautiful scholarly work out there. Yeah, because this sort of abandons a lot of the standard opinions on Dracula and Vlad Tepesh, because part of the general premise is that he is not buried where he's supposedly buried. Do they actually go to Snagov Monastery? I forget. I can't remember. You're asking me to remember a lot. I know, that's the thing about this book. There's a lot that happens and yet nothing happens. It is a book that uses the phrase the evil librarian multiple times. And yet should be far more exciting. It's more of a challenge to read than a, a thrill, which is a shame because... 
we've watched a lot of terrible Dracula movies, but those tend to be over in about two hours. This this goes on, you know? Even, I think, Anne Rice at her most portentous, there is at least something, you know... Homerotic. A glimmer of something fascinating or essential there. Or just a weird insight into her id. And there's character relationships in there. Oh yeah, like, everyone in here op- seems to operate in a different solar system from another person. They're not really characters, they're just... Tour guides. <laughs> tour guides, yep. Except they're not the exciting tour guides. Dressed in costume. Now that would have been amazing. If you really want to give it a shot, we're not going to try and stop you. Even if you're just ready to get as a... <laughs> that makes us sound like really bad parents. <laughs> it's like, well, if you're going to make the mistake, I'd rather you do it in the supervision of <laughs> in our supervision. Look, you can watch Seven if you want, but if you have nightmares, it's not my fault. <laughs> I'm projecting a little there. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. You're not missing much out if you miss this book. Really, the most interesting thing about it for me was its publication history. Yeah. And the way that it's kind of fallen by the wayside. Honestly, if you want to read a vampire book from that year, just read Twilight. For as, you know, questionable and often terrible as it is, it is a book completely unlike anything else in terms of what it's doing with vampire work and is much more worthwhile and important as a piece of vampire fiction lineage than the historian. And still more oddly engrossing. But that's the thing is, I don't think... We've talked about that before. Meyer is not necessarily a great writer, but she's a good storyteller. Yeah. Rostova is neither. She's a yeah. bored professor. I know. I, as I said, <laughs> I ended up reading this between uploading screens and video games. Or while I was waiting for banter to load every 15 minutes or whatever it was. And even then, I still was like, oh, I haven't read anything. I need to read that. And then I just finished reading 80,000 words of fanfiction. <laughs> smutty, smutty fanfiction. Because that was more exciting and interesting and had better character development. Seriously, that was some Yeah, I, I would shit. just skip this one, to be honest. I think it could potentially one day make a really interesting miniseries. The thing was, the someone did buy the... Sony? They did option it for $1.5 million. And that was about a decade ago. So if I'm right, the rights will have lapsed by then. And it's possible someone else could pick them up. Uh, go Elizabeth Costova, get that money, I suppose. <laughs> she don't need to do anything else. That's true. She, she'll be fine. Yeah, she'll be fine. I have no idea if she's writing anything else anymore. I couldn't find any information online about a third book. But she doesn't so. have to. Yeah. And if she does publish something else, I'm not going to react to it. It's not like the announcement of John Green's next book. So that's it for this episode of the Bloodsucking Feminists. We don't really apologize for it not being so long because, frankly, we'd run out of content about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> There's only so much you can make fun of curtains and the over-description of things, but not characters. Next month, we will be doing, by popular, and by popular I mean one-person demand, Dracula 2000, starring Gerard Butler as Dracula. Do you have any comments on this? Have you seen this before? Oh, I love this movie. It's so horrendous and I love it. I have not seen this, so this will be interesting. But apparently it's a terrible Dracula film starring... Well, it's a... Is it terrible or is it mediocre or is it just so bad it's good? It's so bad it's good. And after The Historian, I think we need that. Yes, and it's only like 90 minutes long. So really, we are benefiting from this. 
I was partway through the book and I was like, can we just do a movie next month? Yeah, it was just very, very difficult for us all. But never fear, if nothing else, you will laugh slash roll your eyes at this movie an awful lot. Hooray! So I guess we'll see you next month. If you need to get in contact with us, we are available on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com, via email at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That is fangmail with a G because we are terrible. You should know this by now. Um, we're also on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem, uh, round place on Facebook, and I think a few other locations. Just Google bloodsuckingfeminist, you'll find us. Um, possibly being harassed by men's rights activists who don't get that we love David Bowie. They don't listen to us anyway. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> no, they don't. We're not so popular that we do get harassed by men's rights activists very often. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. It has its ups and downs. We're giving them way too much credit. Anything you'd like to add before we go? No, I don't think... I want to think of something really witty and I don't think I can. To better vampire books? <laughs> to books with actual bite. Remember, never trust librarians. Yes, we'll see you next month and don't let the vampires bite. I mean, unless that's your thing, in which case, go for it. And they would have gotten away with it too if they went for those pesky librarians. <laughs>